Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest has had her short fiction appear in VQR, The White Review, The Sewanee Review, The Southern Review, and Bomb Magazine. She is the winner of the 2018 VQR Prize for Fiction and holds an MFA from the New Writers Project at the University of Texas. She currently lives in Austin, and her debut novel, The Disenchantment, is out now. Please welcome Celia Bell. Hey, Celia. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Adam? I'm doing fabulous. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. I was reading... Um, there was a publisher's weekly interview with you back in November. I was reading last night right before we had talked and um, getting to know you a little better. And I can't wait for readers to get to know you. Um, so tell people about your uh, debut debut novel. So The Disenchantment is a historical novel. It is set in 17th century Paris around the time of the Affair of the Poisons, which was this uh, huge kind of witch hunt scandal involving accusations of poisoning among kind of members of the high society. And the heroine of the disenchantment is Marie-Catherine de Cardenoy, who is a woman who's been unhappily married for many years to a member of the lesser nobility. She's married off at about 15 and doesn't have much say in it. And... <clears throat> She begins an affair with a younger woman who named Victoire, who is um, kind of from a higher social class than she is and who has much more freedom um, and is sort of daring and a little bit gender fluid. And she's able for a while to kind of successfully balance her unhappy marriage with this sphere of freedom that she has in Paris's salon society and with her relationship with Victoire. But as her relationship with Victoire becomes accidentally a little bit more public, she finds herself trying to cover it up. And send, once her husband finds out, uh, she's left in kind of a very precarious situation where she has to escape from the scandal that she has created. Definitely. And I can't wait to ask some questions about how you got to this debut, but uh, what will you be reading for us today? What part? Well, I wanted to read, and this is actually, this is literally the first time I have read aloud from the book in public. Um, I love it. Uh, so it's going to be exciting. It's going to be a little bit of an adventure. Um, but I wanted to read from one of the more uh, historically inspired passages I did a lot of research for this book into the affair of the poisons, and there are a couple places uh, where I borrowed characters from real life. And so what I thought I might read is a passage from the point of view of the magician Lesage, who was a central figure in the affair of the poisons. He was kind of a charlatan magician who ended up being imprisoned and was a really key figure in testifying against a lot of the people who were implicated in this big scandal. And it was interesting because he was um, he had a he had a very kind of tumultuous life and he was an amazing storyteller. And so he was able to invent these stories that seem in retrospect to have been mostly made up. There's the evidence for them is really terrible. 
Um, but the police at the time believed him, despite um, despite a lot of his testimony being kind of self-contradictory. And he was able to get quite a lot of people uh, condemned to very mm-hmm. bad fates. Um, and, you know, I think he kind of did it to save himself. But I there's a there's a piece of the novel that is from his perspective and he's in prison and sort of being interrogated. I thought I'd read that. Oh, I should also I should also say just for context, one of the things that happened to him kind of before his arrest at the Affair of the Poisons is he was sentenced to forced labor, forced labor on one of the Mediterranean slave galleys that um, France still employed in the 17th century. Um, and he was able to come back from it. He somehow got pardoned, which was very, very unusual. Generally, this sentence of forced labor, um, it was a life sentence and people tend to die young because it was a very, very hard life. Um, so yeah. at night in his cell, Lesage sometimes felt the earth tilt underneath him as if he were still on the slave galley. Then he would feel the stagnant summer air of a becalmed ocean, or the unending drip and seep of rain beneath the tent pitched over the oars, where the oarsmen slept in their chains, packed in like fish in a net, his scrawny, flea-bitten back touching his neighbor's bony knees, cold biting through his clothes. The Huguenots murmured prayers of patience to their god, and the Turks prayed in their own language, almost silently, spinning out their laments in a voice low enough that the drowsy guards wouldn't hear and give them a kick. Others drank deep of the Komit's sour, watered wine, and then fouled themselves in their sleep. He had been one of them, often enough, trading his handful of bread for wine, and then dragging himself to the railing in the night to vomit. So quickly they had reduced him to a little candle flame of intellect burning at the back of his neck, its only goal to escape, to keep the scraps of his flesh together, to go on breathing, to escape from pain. Once upon a time, he had been a man who had ambitions other than to continue living. By daylight, the flies landed on his eyelids and drank his sweat as he pulled with both hands on the oar, the ache of the work traveling all the way up his spine. His mind was a wave. It kept taking him back to the boat. From the benches, the oars were the haphazard pikes of an advancing army, rising and then falling to cut the water. One felt the resistance of the waves against the oar's blade, the blistering twist against calloused hands when the oar pulled free, raining down salt droplets. They drank the sweat that rolled down their lips. The Turks called to each other in their own language, back and forth across the aisle of the courser. All the officers believed that the Turks were the strongest oarsmen, better than the Huguenots and the criminals, taller and besides more resigned to having been kidnapped and brought to a bad life in a country far from their own. They spoke pidgin French and abstained from the Komit's wine. At night on the water, each oarsman bedded down chest to knees, the deck too cramped to lie flat. The officers slept on trestles laid over the forest of chained bodies. How many days Lesage had woken up that way, parched, starving, the knobs of his spine, digging a groove against the bench, his head fallen slack against the bearded head of a Turk, a Huguenot, some desperate man, man who, for his religion, had been stripped of all but the barest threads of his life. He, Lesage, had stripped religion from itself. He had profaned the host. He had performed miracles and petty childish tricks. He had been a magician who commanded an army of spirits like Solomon, and now he was hungry and his back was burned from the sun. He held a crust of bread under his shirt. He ate it mouthful by mouthful throughout the day, rolling each bite around his tongue until it softened with spit and became porridge. 
He was trying to make it last, and besides, his teeth hurt when he chewed. He was trying to perform a miracle and turn one loaf into a thousand loaves. The chains that locked him to his oar had worn blisters into his skin and proved the worthlessness of all his miracles. When they set him free, he had returned to Paris. He'd remembered La Voisin a thousand times on the water, and then, when he'd grown too hungry, forgotten her entirely. He left the boat and bundled up his oarsman's cloak and gone back to Paris and stood at her doorstep and eaten turnip soup and mutton at her table and felt a new kind of rage rising in his throat, along with the old lust and the old resentment. So the witch's husband beat her. Should he give a fuck? She still drank her fill of wine, slept in a warm bed, earned enough coins with her spells and poisons to buy bread. She was nothing to him. Inside his stomach, there was an ocean with a beetle-oared ship crawling across it, slowly, staffed by groans, never advancing. I'm hungry, the ocean said. The rest of you can get fucked. Was there anyone in Paris who might have held something against the Baron de, de Carnoy? Lieutenant General de la Reine asked. And the ocean said, throw them all in. La Voisin, La, la Filastre, La Chapelle, Soissons, Luxembourg, Montespan, Jesus, the Pope, the King. I will tell you a story that never ends. I will feed you a mountain of bodies, but I will not go back to the oar. Yeah, thank you so much for reading. Um, congratulations on your first public reading. I mean, virtually, of course. Um, <laughs> thank you. So the book, like you know, it's, it's historical fiction. It deals with a very specific moment in time. How did you find this like thread that you wanted to follow? Well, actually, um, it the the sort of original thread of the novel, the original inspiration for the novel mm. is this woman um, named Madame Delnoy, who was a French writer of fairy tales in the 17th century. She um, she lived, um, she would have been alive at the Fair of the Poisons, but she um, she's a little bit older than Marie-Catherine. Um, I, I moved the time frame a little bit, but she mm -hmm. was a French writer of fairy tales whose work I knew a little bit. When I started researching her, I realized that I'd actually had a book of her fairy tales as a child um, and like remembered them incredibly vividly because they're these incredibly kind of dark scary um almost cynical stories um but they're very they're very very kind of beautifully written um but she was the inspiration for marie catherine like the heroine of the disenchantment she was married off at a, at a very young age to a horrible man um and uh spent as as kind of after after a few years of marriage she began trying to escape him um, and actually successfully managed to have him imprisoned in the Bastille for quite some time and led an independent life. Um, but then he was able to clear his name and she ended up in quite a lot of trouble and probably had to flee France. And as I was reading more about her life, um, I was reading it and thinking like, oh my God, this is sort of already a novel. It's, uh, it was so kind of the, the reversals of her story were so fascinating to me and the way that her life felt like it was kind of intertwined with her fairy tales. And so I started doing a little bit more research into the period. I knew it once that I wanted, I didn't want the novel to be technically about her. I wanted it to be inspired by her because I wanted 
sort of the freedom to make things up. And she was a person who she both wrote her own memoirs quite extensively and and fictionalized them quite extensively. A lot mm-hmm. of the things in her memoirs are you're sort you read them and you're kind of like, I don't think this happens, Madame <laughs> Lavoie. <laughs> um but she also, after her death, there were a lot of stories, and, and even during her life, there were a lot of stories written about her in such a way that it's quite difficult to separate fact from fiction. And so I knew that I didn't want to kind of in reinvent her as a historical figure. I wanted to kind of take her legacy and write a new story um, without feeling bound to, to like shift, uh, sift out like what's real and what's not. And so I started doing a lot more research into the period and reading about the affair of the poisons. And I was like, I'll I might move, I might change the change the time period a couple decades. I've taken a few liberties with historical fact in the novel, but I've tried to be very, very accurate. Mm-hmm. Most things. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of, that was kind of how it uh came to be. Yeah. And as like you start <laughs> writing it, you mentioned like you try to be historically accurate, but you took liberties. Uh it's fiction. Uh, what was your approach to to that specifically like when did you i mean when did you know you needed to bend the rules to make it work for your story the rules of time you know yeah um it was more that's an interesting question i well i knew it i knew when i first began writing the story that i wanted it to be in conversation with the present day mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of a lot of the pieces of the story, um, like um, in you know the or the the thematic the, the let me try that again. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll edit it out. Don't worry. I am going to like redo that uh, that answer in such a way that I speak in sentences. Um, yeah. So there, when I was first writing the novel, I knew that I wanted it to be in conversation with the present day. Um, I felt very strongly that kind of the conversation that the novel is having with itself about women's autonomy and class and um kind of, and gender were was going to be relevant to a modern audience it didn't feel like a closed question and so i knew that i wanted to have kind of moments in the book where things aren't strictly bound to kind of a realist historical fiction mm-hmm. kind of narrative. Um, and so there are a few, a few little things that a few little details like, that I've changed around. Um, like for instance, there's a, there's a kind of a thematically important statue that appears in the novel that actually she's a time traveler because I realized uh, as I was reading, she wasn't quite made in 1680 when the novel takes place. And I was like, I don't care. I'm using her anyway. Um, And then there are moments in the novel where I kind of break the rules of realism a little bit. um, And I decided that we were going to be allowed to have ghosts and a sentient suit of clothes and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's so fascinating. I love when historical fiction or any fiction really is, you know, 80, 90% realism. And then there's like that dash of mm-hmm. special magical realism or whatever you want to call it put in to make things work and themes pop out. Um, was there a lot of, I mean, other than research, researching the actual time and everything was there a lot of reading historical fiction to see how those books were written or paced or things like that um not really mm-hmm. um 
And the exception is before I had started writing the novel, I reread Pat Barker's Regeneration Trilogy. Mm. Um, and this is this is a series of historical novels that are set during World War One. Um, and probably if I if I well, I won't even say probably if I was list if I was making a list of my favorite books, they would be on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're they're about um the work of WHR Rivers, who was a um, an army psychologist who did a lot of work on um, the treatment of PTSD, uh, what was mm. it called shell shock, but he worked with soldiers returning from World War I. Um, and there are these incredible novels um, that follow um, Rivers and Sassoon and an, another cast of characters, but the kind of the deafness with which Barker is able to recreate the world in which her characters lived in without um, it ever feeling obtrusive. I read those uh, not really for, in, of course, not insight, not for insight into 17th century Paris, mm -hmm. uh, but for, you know, for a way of writing that could make it feel like the past was entirely present. Um, and was its own kind of fully formed world. Yeah. And reading them and looking at the way that she does her characters was one of the things that really made me feel like I could write The Disenchantment. Thank you so much to Celia for joining the Day Beautiful First Taste reading series. You can follow her on Twitter at Celia D. Bell. You can get The Disenchantment now anywhere books are sold. And you can follow Day Beautiful at Day Beautiful or our website, daybeautiful.net. As always, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful.